Hey folks, it's Jared. Today I'm joined by Andy Young to discuss British Coastal Forces. This episode was edited and produced by Jim Jarvie. Here at SimSec, we aim to further the international maritime peace and security through an exchange of ideas and the rigor of critical thought and writing. If you haven't already, please check out simsec.org for new articles on the most important maritime topics. You'll probably enjoy our new series on Notes to the New CNO. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, check out the Write for SimSec tab to learn how you can submit articles for publication. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shimmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Andrew Young, and we're going to discuss his article, co-written with Richard Skelton, Relearning Old Tricks, the Royal Navy's Coastal Forces Squadron. So, Andy, welcome aboard. Could you start by telling the listeners a little bit about your background, please? Uh, certainly. Um, thank you for having me. i um, really been looking forward to this. Um, so I'm a former Ra- Royal Navy training management officer, uh, which means I've had opportunity to work across the whole of the Royal Navy um, at all levels from recruit to first sea lord. Uh, currently, I work with the Royal Navy Strategic Study Centre, which is the Navy's internal think tank. Um, and away from all of that, I'm a first-year PhD candidate at King's College London's Lawton Naval History Unit. Was any of that time spent at FOST? Uh, so officially worked for FOST under the Naval Education and Training Services Group, where we went out and we assured education and training for the vessels which were deployed, um, which for me was primarily the hydrographic survey, uh, meteorological, um, the uh, four deployed uh, offshore patrol vessel um, vessels and the Falkland Islands guard ship and the Antarctic patrol vessel. Did you also have a ridiculous British title like N432 Alpha Decimal 3 Special to Fast? Uh, no, no. Mine was literally Nets Ops 7. There were supposedly seven of us, but there were only five in place at, at, at the time. Disappointing, disappointing. <laughs> but as a reminder to the listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So, Andy, we'll, we'll go back in time now to World War II. What is the Royal Navy? What did the Royal Navy use its coastal forces for during World War II? Um, so primarily during the Second World War, the Royal Navy had taken on the lessons that it learned in the First World War. Uh, where it had first really experimented with having coastal motorboats. Uh, and the idea behind it was that a coastal force or a coastal motorboat flotilla can really close with an enemy coastline uh, in an A to AD infested world, primarily mines and shore batteries, uh, radar controlled shore batteries in ways that larger surface vessels can't. Um, and this was used to great effect in, in, uh, the First World War and in the, uh, Russian Civil War, uh, where in fact the Royal Navy managed to get some of its coastal motor boats into the Caspian Sea, um, which, uh, is rather reminiscent of, uh, our own Royal Navy and US Navy, uh, shenanigans on the Great Lakes, um, in the early 19th century. But anyway, come, come 1939, and it was recognized again that coastal forces would be a significant force multiplier uh, for the Royal Navy, both in a defensive and offensive role. Why? Well, because these are small, fast, and for want of a better word, agile ships um, that sport relatively heavy armament, uh, certainly 
capable of disabling, if not sinking, destroys or cruises if handled correctly. And the coastal flotillas had a really important role in the close blockade of, of the channel. So harassing enemy shipping, dominating the channel in the North Sea, um, and doing that either through aggressive patrolling or supporting mine laying efforts. Interestingly, one of the tactics developed by the Royal Navy in this period was the use of captain-class frigates as coastal forces control frigates. Um, basically, a sense of mothership for a squadron of motor gun or motor torpedo boats and a precursor to more modern distributed maritime operations. Um, by the war's end, um, there are circa 25,000 personnel in the uh, coastal forces flotillas with some 2,000 craft. Um, and these accounted for almost 400 enemy vessels of all kind. They are involved in everything from, as I said, those harassing uh, and aggressive patrolling tactics to the insertion of commando forces into Axis occupied areas, the disruption of uh, Japanese amphibious warfare um, operations in the Far East. Um, and uh, some, some also supporting uh, some of our larger operations. So D-Day, for example, was screened to its flanks by large numbers of our coastal coastal forces flotillas to really keep the the German Navy out of the fight uh, whilst whilst D-Day went ahead. So we'll pause here real quickly for the listeners. If you want to hear a little bit more about coastal forces and what those uh, vessels were used for, Sea Control 421, Uncommon Courage with Julia Jones, uh, covering her book on that subject. Uh, So why did coastal forces fall out of favor during the Cold War? It's an interesting one because from a personal perspective, I see it as down for three principal reasons. And the first part of that is it's the advent of the nuclear missile age which meant the tactics and techniques of war at sea were going through this, as some people said, through a transformation. Basically, we are coming onto a, into a more standoff over the horizon posture, being able to, to strike the enemy long before you're going to be able to see them. Um, and thus, the idea of getting in close and launching relatively short-range munitions against a ship that vastly outranged and out-missiled you was almost unthinkable. Now, one could argue that this was premature when you consider the Israeli and Sri Lankan experience in in the Cold War period, where both navies followed initially followed the UK example of building ocean-going forces, only then to recapitalise their coastal flotillas when faced by an enemy who doesn't play by the same rules. Um, and when you're actually operating in inshore waters, the brown, brown spaces uh, uh, Milan Vigo talks about. Secondly, and relatedly, you've got the scope of the battle to come. Um, so the Royal Navy in the Cold War was focused quite rightly on the battle in the GI-UK gap, the Greenland Iceland uk gap. This was something that, that had preoccupied the Royal Navy when you consider that its uh, longest running operation in the Second World War was that, uh, that battle in the Atlantic. Um, so this is going to be an anti-submarine battle. It's not going to be a surface contest. The coastal forces would have very limited utility should the Soviet Navy try to break out into the North Atlantic, either through the GIUK or out of the Baltic and up into the North Sea. Um, in either case, it was argued quite cogently at the time that land and sea-based air would provide the better option for defeating surface combatants. Um, and Hunting the subsurface threat could also be done from these, from the concrete battleship or the, or the carrier that's stationed quite, quite far down threat. Um, 
away from Greenland Iceland UK, then the fleet was dominated by its amphibious mission. So you saw, particularly in the first few decades of the of, of the uh, Cold War, uh, the com three commander brigades stationed out in the Far East, then uh, coming close to home into the Middle East. But it was there as a quick reaction force. And this was something that had never really happened for the Royal Navy before. Amphibiosity was not a Royal Navy task, um, but maybe that's a conversation for another day. Finally, it came down to resource. Um, and that's in terms of, of men, materiel and cash. So the UK defence budget uh, come the 1950s was entering a period of relative decline. One could argue we've never really left that. Um, and this was pretty typical for the British exchequer. Every time for the last 300 years, we fought a war. You've seen costs go up through the roof. And afterwards, the Royal Navy and the, the British defence establishment is scaled back quite hard. Um, so the RN was effectively given a choice. It could have the high-end blue water fleet that is the hallmark of a major navy or focus on doing things closer to home. Now, this went in hand for those first two points, really. Um, and looking at that, that, uh, that type of battle that was going to be fought, the threat was no longer in the Channel or North Sea or the Western approaches, but had been pushed further away to the north and further east away from UK shores. Um, therefore, a more focused fleet was required. The UK could not have afford to devote the time, money, personnel and material to maintaining large coastal flotillas for what were seen as discretionary tasks for home defence and whose operational utility, as it currently stood then, was largely confined to small wars uh, in the Middle and Far East in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And that was a mission that was really discounted after the 1968 uh, retreat from east of Suez. So initially, the Royal Navy retained some coastal capability, predominantly as harbour or inshore patrol boats, um, particularly for the overseas stations. But more and more, those tasks were given over to local reserve or auxiliary units. And eventually, coastal forces was wrapped up in 1968, with only the inshore minesweeps retained for a short period. Um, and even those were disposed of by the, by the 70s. Uh, the vestiges of coastal forces was retained in the purchase of the Archer class P2000s in the 80s, but these were tenders, so they're unarmed and are used primarily or were used primarily as navigational training vessels with university Royal Naval units. So why did the squadron come back in 2020 and what sort of assets are assigned? So... In 2020, you've you've got a new situation that's arising with the, with the Royal Navy in some respects, but you've really got to go back to the 1980s and that purchase of the Archer class P2000s, um, and they were purchased primarily as a number of tenders for inshore navigation work. Um, they're well designed for that designated purpose, um, that that inshore navigational ship handling. Um, they displace about 53 tons. They have a shallow draft of about just shy of two meters, and they're just shy of 21 meters long, which means that they, they are very small, very capable vessels. And as I say, they're, they're tenders. They're not actually um, able to be described as these, these larger fast tap craft, et cetera, or, or, or patrol craft. Um, we purchased 16 of them, 14, which essentially go to uh, University Royal Naval Units, um, and two are initially uh, part of uh, an overseas squadron based in Cyprus. Um, and they're putting about doing training for, for university students, uh, for 
seamen officers who can't get enough uh, sea time. They need to go and freshen up on their inshore training um, and ship handling training as well for officers to watch. Um, in 2014, the Royal Navy decided that they needed a better avenue for uh, bringing on a new generation of seamen officers. So the Small Vessel Command initi Initiative delinked the P2000s from the Ernus. Um, this is in part to increase the command opportunity for junior warfare officers, um, but also recognition that other branches of the RN could undertake the Ernu, that University Royal Naval Unit, command role. Further, by delinking the two, the RN could get more availability out of the vessels without impacting other activities, earlier activities. So this is a win-win. What were they using them for? Primarily as op for, um, so mimicking the the fast attack craft swarms that we were seeing coming out of uh, places like Iran for ships during workup deployment to the Middle East and Gulf regions. Um, the first patrol boat squadron, as it then was, was expanded in 2019 and was rebranded Coastal Forces Squadron. Uh, with the intent to create an operationally viable flotilla of inshore patrol vessels with a mandate to explore and experiment new doctrine. So it was really this confluence of things where we recognised we didn't have enough training, we needed to get more out of the holes that we had, and we had this, these readily available assets there which could, could link the two together. I'm going to go off script a little bit here with the next question here. And if you can't respond, just tell me and we'll move along. But as I've watched the deployment of HMS Tamar, HMS Bay, and then heard some of the responses to your earlier questions here, have any of the uses of these smaller vessels and what you found them suited for caused any sort of internal discussion about rethinking naval diplomacy? Just because these smaller vessels actually tend to be, in my opinion, more effective at the naval diplomacy piece because you are bridge wing to bridge wing with a lot of the partner nations that we're visiting. Whereas if you show up with something like a daring class vessel, you are looking down, like literally and figuratively kind of looking down at the people that you're working with here uh, from like, I mean, that thing looks like a, a battleship compared to a, a patrol vessel, whereas that patrol vessel, again, you're yeah. looking straight across it, at the other captain eye to eye and it's it's just easier to connect that way it, it is very much a if you and, and i go back as a historian i go back to the 18th and 19th centuries um there are certain things you can do with a lighter touch on the tiller as it were and with with sending a vessel that's less less of a status symbol than you can do sometimes with with the major warships and the major major vessels. Sometimes you do need that major vessel. For example, one of the one of the uh, Type Forty Fives transiting through international waters off Crimea. That sends a very clear message. But as you say, if you want to be going in and doing navigational training, opening up partnerships with uh, with host nations, if you want to have that light touch, get them over, have a talk, have a really do the soft diplomacy option then yes, having something which isn't as imposing, isn't quite so much of a brute, well, it's, it's the hammer and nail. You've got to have that that Swiss Swiss Army knife toolkit. And these vessels, okay, they're not going to be um, up threat during a peer-on-peer -peer competition, but that's not their job. Unless you're going to go down the Israeli route the, and the, uh, the, the, that littoral uh, 
uh, fast attack craft route, and you are going to upgun them, and you're going to put something on them that can cause uh, cause serious damage. But at that person-to-person level, there's so much more that can be done by taking on board a few of the, for example, the Omanis or the or even the Yemeni Coast Guard when we were still operating and still training them onto a smaller vessel and just going, look, these are the basics. Let's get these right before we teach you how to how to kick down doors. And in, in other parlance. Yeah. And there's an entire other discussion to be had that we could probably spend a separate 45 minutes on about the value of upgunning some of these vessels to uh, mm-hmm. do some of the things where we could actually then go and learn from some of these nations that are operating smaller combatants. But uh, what has Coastal Forces accomplished since it was reconstituted back in 2020? I know you've touched on some bits and pieces of this, and I mentioned Tamar and Spay, but if you have anything else. Yeah. So, in some respects, we've got to delink from what uh, the the river uh, the batch two river class uh, offshore patrol vessels are doing out in the Pacific, um, and also in the in in the Mediterranean and in the Atlantic um, and the Caribbean. So, they, because those are going to be our persistently forward deployed vessels, platforms, and doing that that soft gen diplomacy piece, flying the flag and and building relationships. One of the things that we're looking at with or the the uh, Coastal Forces Squadron are doing is starting to build relationships with partners closer to home. Now, the first sort of 18 months of uh, of, of uh, Coastal Forces being stood up was, of course, during the pandemic. So not much happened. Um, in, it, it was them finding their feet, but it gave them time to actually set the organization in place and do that, that backroom stuff that needs to happen for any organization, especially a new organization to be, to be put on a secure footing. So that's not to denigrate that and, and say that nothing happened. A lot happened behind the scenes, but the first real impact that they had, Coastal Forces Squadron had, and the first mission set they were given as an operational entity was for op isotrope. Now, Op Isotrope uh, was the RN contribution to dealing with small boats crossing the channel. And if we take the politics out of that away from it for, for a minute, because there are significant politics around that mission, um, this was a successful demonstration of what the squadron could do and, and could achieve. It's, we brought together six of, or they brought together six of 14 vessels, um, stationed them in a harbour which they wouldn't normally operate out of on the south coast they rotated their crews through so they kept the holes going and they just rotated the crews through um uh through that up and normal duties and in a hark back to those coastal forces control frigates they were guided to intercept by hms7 and offshore patrol vessel um so it was really this coordination of a number of holes to escort uh, the, the small boats in, make sure that they, the boats themselves weren't in danger of uh, loss of life at sea, um, and then acting in a command and control and that forward sensor piece, uh, uh, which, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, now, following the success of that operation and the proof of concept, the squadron undertook a deployment to Norway, uh, where they operated alongside their Norwegian counterparts in the Arctic Circle. Um, this was the longest deployment of the P-2000s in their history. Um, without being permanently assigned or stationed to a region, so the other the the other longest or really was uh, out to Cyprus to to take on duties there. Um, uh, but what this significantly showcased was actually what the vessels could do as they are today. 
recognizing that they have significant limitations. Um, they could fulfill about 70% of the Norwegian CB-90 mission set, including insertion of reconnaissance and commando forces, acting as an advanced ISR platform, and posing dilemmas for an adversary by popping up rather unexpectedly on your radar when you're looking somewhere else. Um, so you combine that with what they've been experimenting with in terms of their own doctrine, and they've been going back to the 1940s to get that doctrine, um, but also looking at what people like the Norwegians are doing, what the Israelis have done in the past, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they've been experimenting themselves as motherships for UAV and uh, uncrewed surface vessels and as towed array platforms for, albeit smaller, uh, anti-submarine warfare uh, um, mission sets. So there are some significant limitations to the vessels, not just down to the fact that they are 40 years old now. I mean, these are 1980s vessels designed for training. So they're, they're reduced in size. They're less than 21 meters. They're venerable internally with their electric, electrical and mechanical fits and wiring. Um, their engine fit is not ideal. They can go up to circa 45 knots if they've got the right engines. They've got a great plastic hull. Um, it's a planing hull. So they have the capability there. But they also have a lack of organic um, offensive and defensive suites. I and mean, typically they're fitted for, but not with an Ehrlichan and GPMG mount. Um, they've got P very poor uh electronic warfare fit as, it, as as standard but but again we've got to go back to what they were designed for and the same with their comms fits i mean so all of these things would need to be overcome they are actually looking at what comes after the p2000s because of this this vulnerability in in the platform um, and significant work has to be done to bring them up to scratch for the kind of operations envisioned in the future and to meet their full potential. I think this is a, a great reason for them to look back at what was done during the Second World War. And again, I would refer you back to Uncommon Courage with Julia Jones. And I think one of the major lessons for me from reading that book was because I was very skeptical about some of the platforms um that the U.S. was using. But the lesson from that book is like in any sort of great power conflict, anything that floats, you can mm -hmm. find a use for. If it floats, you will find a use for it. So all the things that you described, uh, particularly what they're doing up in, in and around the uh, fjords there in Norway, is it going to decide the conflict? No. Is it going to help? Uh, unquestionably. Um, but what's the benefit of investing in smaller units like this? And I know we've covered a lot of this already, but if you have anything to add, please do. Is the Royal Navy moving to do that? Sounds like the answer to that second part is yes. Yes, I, I would say uh, definitively yes. Um, and okay, I've covered a lot about the physical element. The reality is, is that what coastal forces offer is much more in the conceptual and moral component of fighting power. Um, they're an adjunct physically for all the reasons that you've just said they're not going to be battle winning enough for themselves but they do do have scope which i'll come to in a, in a second bit but primarily i see it as being a breeding ground for operationally sound tactically savvy and most importantly aggressive commanders there is a reason why um in history all the royal navy's greatest admirals starting out commanding small vessels 
uh, tasked with dominating, patrolling, and securing brown water environments. Um, you look at Anson, you look at Hawke, Howe, Nelson, all the way through to, to Cunningham. Every single one of them started off in inshore squadrons of some variety or other. Um, that is significant. Um, so coastal forces really require its personnel to be judicious in the use of force, uh, to accept risk and exercise mission command. Uh, and in many respects, and going back to what you were alluding to earlier, it's about having sound diplomatic judgment uh, when cooperating with civil authorities and allies. Um, and you have to be on top of this as a junior lieutenant. Um, that is not something you can effectively train from the bridge of a warship, like a like a Type 45, a frigate, a destroyer, and even less so on one of the on, on one of the principal uh, uh, platforms, like a carrier or, or an amphibious ship. You just don't get that. And and thinking about that that training piece, you've also got to look at people like uh, Commodore Mike Clapp, who was Commander Amphibious Task Group down in the Falklands. Um, I cannot think of a man who was better suited to being the commander of the Amphibious Task Group than Mike Clapp, because there was he as a junior officer on a tongue-class minesweep doing coastal forces activities in the Far East in the 60s, um, running Marines and Gurkhas and others on amphibious uh, patrols up into up in, up into Indonesia and the, the the whole Borneo confrontation piece. It's a great breeding ground for that. So, but I could wax lyrical on that. I'll leave that. The second bit, as I alluded to, is the distributed sensor command kill chain that they offer. Um, that greatly increases your own fleet's opportunities to fight, move, survive, and concurrently, a distributed tritable agile character of the squadron means that adversaries have to work very hard to find strike um, and and really to to discern from the plethora of potential tasks um, the 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 accurate or, or potential targets rather the actual versus the perceived it's a great deception measure apart from anything else um, and by offering that on a plate, you're swamping the enemy's decision-making processes and systems. They have to prioritize. You don't. You can expand the threat envelope, and hopefully that means we can force the enemy to engage early on our terms. Um, however, you also have to recognize that this 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 is a plan of a best-case scenario and no, no plan survives. Um, and you are going to take losses. But for hopefully, you take losses of these types of assets with few personnel little um, material outlay and material costs rather than 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 taking the the losses back in the back in the main fleet and then finally there's a piece that we don't talk about but we really should and that is visibility um, having a blue water fleet as the hallmark of peer conflict capability um, but it does mean that nobody sees it not the enemy not our own citizenry and there's a morale effect to this. And you, you think about the French Navy being under close blockade in Brest during the 18th and 19th century, knowing that they could put out and deal with these small inshore craft like the Coastal Forces Squadron. But, oh, by the way, those things are backed up from over the horizon. But it's the pressure that these guys put on you, which which is a massively deleterious effect to your own morale. At home, and conversely, the RN does 90% of its activity out of sight of land and from just three ports, Plymouth, Portsmouth, and the Clyde. 
The Coastal Forces Squadron is embedded in coastal communities. They are visible and they're in ports that would not normally see a naval presence. Now, you cannot put a price on that on a country that is maritime in, in, in character, if not in nature. Um, and that, that offers a means for us really to reconnect with civil society. And that is so important when we're now in an era where uh, protection of inshore and offshore facilities, where infrastructure that runs under the seabed and over the sea, seas, etc., and sovereignty really matters to the civil populace. Um, and that means ubiquity has to be in there somewhere. These things can be ubiquitous, even if it's only transient. Well, I'll circle back on a couple of things you said there. First of all, as someone whose uh, own early command platform was decommissioned last year uh, with no real ostensible replacement for young, aggressive lieutenant, lieutenant commander types, uh, I, I cannot stress the the need for like, the early command is, uh, is an area for growth for young aggressive officers that was a, it's a personal hobby horse and uh, it's as multiple mentors told me is like the best way to learn to command is command early command mm-hmm. often um the third point that you mentioned here with the presence in the other city so we we had interviewed dr jane friend previously on an article she'd done on destroyer diplomacy about the use of royal navy destroyers uh, i want to say in the early 1900s kind of and in the interwar period to uh connect the Royal Navy with the UK populace. Well, with the size of modern destroyers, you can no longer reach many of the ports that these vessels were going to. But these smaller vessels, you can steam them up most of the rivers that you have and reach actually quite far inland uh, if you want to show the country its Navy. So I think that's a good point. Um, If you're going to permit me to shift gears here, though, we have one final question. I want to talk about the uh, Royal Navy Strategic Studies Center. So what sort of work does the center do? What's your mission there? Um, so we're, we're relatively new again, like the Coastal Forces Squadron. We only stood up in 2019 and I've only been with them since December, uh, December 2022. Uh, um, but we're the Navy's internal think tank. We're not an educational establishment. We don't do education, um, although we, we tap into think tanks and academia and others. And our basis really is to to challenge naval thought um, and progress it. Um, At our core, we exist to better inform thinking on naval matters amongst the naval staff. Um, And to do that, we produce thought pieces on topics of interest, uh, give them readouts from conferences, red team their policy and strategy documents, um, as well as undertaking longer research theme topics and producing primers for, for them to go away and think about. Um, we also seek to link back into academia and give them the practitioner focus and the, and, and, uh, that perspective and act as a convening forum, uh, to cross the divide because practice informs theory and theory informs practice. You've got to get the whole lot going together, um, which is, which is something which has been lacking certainly in the UK for, for a few years. Um, uh, from my perspective, we do all of that best really by challenging orthodoxy, um, certainly orthodoxy at the heart of our assumptions. Um, and what I mean by that is you go back to the foundational principles. Uh, we are very good in militaries at piling up concepts and terms and dogma on top of uh, what is really the, the, the enduring nature of war and saying, oh, look at this, hasn't, hasn't war transformed? 
well, actually has it really. Um, and I think, and linking it back to coastal forces, there we are. Every time we turn the wheel, when it, when it comes to, to uh, peer competition, at some point, we always come back to the brown water. And Milan Vigo puts it, puts it very well when he talks about that. You, you come back to these foundational points on the nature of maritime war. The seat of purpose is on land. I've never, uh, I've never argued otherwise, uh, but unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. Um, Andy, I'm looking forward to see what else you and the center uh, push out, and I'm sure we'll bring you and some of your colleagues back in the future here. But I'd like to thank my guest, Andrew Young. Where can we find you online? What are you working on next? Uh, so you can find me on Wavel Room. Um, I'm, I do quite a bit of work for them um, over at the Royal United Services Institute. If you, if you uh, search for Andy Young or Andrew Young will come up with quite a few things. Um, I've got two book chapters out with US military publications. Uh, so Uncontested Shores through Marine Corps University Press and Armies in Retreat through Army University Press. And uh, the next few months are going to be spent getting dug into Thomas More Molyneux and the birth of amphibious doctrine in the UK. Now, I look forward to reading and we'll bring you back um, maybe, maybe we'll have Walker do that one since you're used to uh, collaborating with him so much. But thank you again for joining us. To listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.